Well, last week, as you know, we looked at that important text in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 18 to 31, where the Apostle Paul makes it very clear that there are two categories of men in this world. And he, he summarizes that idea in verse 18 of 1 Corinthians chapter 1, when he, when he says this, he says, the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. And you remember that as we we went through that text and studied it deeply, uh, we came to some very important implications that arise out of Paul's teaching about the word of the cross and how the word of the cross divides between those who are perishing, who consider it to be foolishness, and those who are being saved, who consider the word of the cross to be the power of God. And, and one of the implications of that teaching in that text was, was that we are to, to stop pursuing the validation of this world. The world, made up of those who are perishing, will never consider the message of the cross to be anything intelligent or attractive. They will always look upon it as a stumbling block or as foolishness, as the Apostle Paul stated in that important text. Related to that, you remember this quote from J. Gresham Machen in his book, What is Faith? As, as he puts his finger on a, on a problem of so many men in being in their anxiety or concern about being validated or verified or approved by the world. And and Machen said this. He said, there are those who are concerned with the question of their standing before men, but never with the question of their standing before God. There are those who are interested in what people say, but not in the question of what God says. Such men, however, are not those who move the world. They are apt to go with the current. They are apt to do as others do. They are not the heroes who change the destinies of the race. The beginning of true nobility comes when a man ceases to be interested in the judgment of men and becomes interested in the judgment of God, end quote. And certainly that statement is an applicable implication or application that we can draw from Paul's teaching in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 18 to 31. That the opinion of the world should not matter to us. We should not care about how the world judges the word of the cross. Yet with that said, that does not mean that we never make a defense. It does not mean that we isolate ourselves. It does not mean that we remain silent. It does not mean that we be, become aggressive and, and retaliate. Instead, we are called upon to make a defense of this faith. To, to make a defense of the word of the cross. To, to make a defense of Christ and his glory. And the text that we turn to, which helps us understand how we respond to the accusations and the hostility of the world, the the text that we're going to turn to this evening 
is in 1 Peter, 1 Peter chapter 3, a very well-known text for some of the, the language that this text contains as it relates to mounting a defense as, as the world comes at us for our belief in the word of the cross. Peter writes this in 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 13 to 17. Who is there to harm you if you prove zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed. And do not fear their intimidation and do not be troubled, but sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you. Yet with gentleness, and reverence. And keep a good conscience, so that in the thing in which you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ will be put to shame. For it is better, if God should will it so, that you suffer for doing what is right rather than for doing what is wrong. Now what this text addresses is is it provides the answer to the question, How are we to respond when challenged about the faith? How are we to respond when challenged about the word of the cross and its power and effects in our lives? Now, as we study this text, 1 Peter provides four directives for mounting this successful defense in this hostile world. We're going to look at these four directives one by one as we go through the text. Number one, the first directive is this, establish the fundamental assumptions. We're going to see that in verse 13 and the beginning of verse 14. Number two, obey the primary obligations. We're going to see that in the second half of verse 14 and the first half of verse 15. Number three, display the appropriate responses. Verse 15b to the end of verse 16, and then finally, embrace the sovereignty of God. Four directives for the making of a successful defense of the word of the cross, of the faith, as we are challenged by the world around us. Now, just a few notes here about the the context into which Peter writes. We could Look at chapter 1, verse 1, where we, where we read of the recipients of this particular letter. The original recipients were believers who were scattered throughout the area of what is today central and northern Turkey. It's the region, as 1 Peter 1, verse 1 says, the, the regions of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. That is the, the region where these recipients Reside, And this is a little important to consider because the, the question is raised, well, in, in what social context did Peter direct his words? What kind of hostility were these recipients in modern day, located in what would be modern day Turkey and ancient Roman provinces in those days? What, what kind of social circumstance uh, were they in? And it's interesting to note that scholars debate when first Peter was, was written and, 
And, and many will argue that it was written either just before or just after the burning of Rome. In July of AD 64, a massive fire destroyed much of the ancient city of Rome. It is said that in the midst of that fire, uh, Nero, the emperor, fiddled as he watched Rome burn. Now, the question is, did, was First Peter written before or after? And if it's written after, does Peter reflect some of the problems that developed from this event in the, in the lives of the residents of the Roman Empire, specifically in, in Christians, because it is known that, that Nero, after that fire, blamed Christians in Rome for the destruction and even used Christians as human candles to illuminate his gardens at night. So certainly at this time, AD 64, there was a new kind of persecution that started to, to, uh, to, to erupt there in Rome against Christians And so some have said, perhaps Peter, knowing this already, is writing to the residents of these regions who are facing some of this newfound persecution. Well, it's difficult to tell whether the Christians who were quite removed from Rome and Italy, whether they were facing the severe persecution that broke out there after the fire in, in Rome. We don't know exactly. However, Peter does make one reference to the kind of, uh, the kind of circumstances that the believers were facing. It's, it's found in chapter 4, verse 12 to 13. If you look there for just a moment, you see how, how Peter describes their lives, their, their circumstances. He says this as he, as he gets into chapter 4, verse 12. He says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you which comes upon you for your testing, as though some strange thing were happening to you. But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing, so that also at the revelation of his glory you may rejoice with exaltation. So these recipients of this letter were facing some kind of general uncomfortable ostracism and harassment that we can be sure perhaps not being burned as a human candle but nonetheless facing some general discomfort in in their regular lives because of their role as proclaiming the excellencies of Christ so with that said let's look at how Peter instructs them to make this defense in light of hostilities. And as we go through this, let's understand this, that, that we are headed toward what these recipients, these original recipients, were facing in their lives. We're on that path. No one would say today that it is becoming easier for the true church here in Western society. It's not. That's not where things are headed. And so this instruction is important for us as we, as we consider what is happening around us, the spirit of the, of, of the times, and, and prepare ourselves for, for what will undoubtedly happen even in our own generation. So let's look at how Peter instructs us 
through his instruction to these believers who lived almost 2,000 years ago. First of all, the first directive is this. Establish the fundamental assumptions. Establish the fundamental assumptions. We've got to begin there. We've got to begin with, with, with our, our, our thinking. We've got to begin with our presuppositions. How we understand the world in which we live. And, and Peter gives us this information with, some, uh, with, with two sentences here in, in verse 13 and verse 14 when he writes this. He says, who is there to harm you if you prove zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed. Now, now Peter, through these two sentences, identifies two important assumptions upon which we are to operate. We must begin with these two assumptions. And these two assumptions are based on something he just said in the verses preceding verse 13. If you look in your Bibles to the, to, to the verses preceding verse 13, you see that in verses 10, 11, and 12 of chapter 3, Peter is quoting from the Old Testament. He, he quotes from Psalm 34, and, and, and specifically Psalm 34, verses 12 to 16, but let me read it here in, in, in Peter's words. Verse 10 begins this way, For the one who desires life to love and to see good days, must keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. He must turn away from evil and do good. He must seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his ears attend to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. So Peter just quotes that. Psalm 34 is a wonderful psalm about the protection of the righteous and the punishment of the evildoers. And, and, and in that psalm, the psalmist elevates this idea that we live in a cause and effect universe. That God is in control and it's a moral universe. And so there are consequences both to doing good and to doing evil. That's, that's what is brought out there in, in Psalm 34. Now, Peter quotes a section of that in these verses here and then transitions to this teaching on mounting a defense. And these are the two assumptions that Peter draws from that citation of Psalm 34 and the realization that we live in a moral cause and effect universe. The first assumption is this. Diligence in doing good is the first line of defense. Diligence in doing good is the first line of defense. Notice what he says in verse 13. He he asks this rhetorical question when he says this, who is there to harm you if you prove zealous for what is good? Again, this is a rhetorical question. The answer is obvious. The way that Peter asks this question assumes that the answer is no one. No one. And the harm that he's speaking of here is some kind of concrete, distinct, personal injustice that is done from the hand of one person to another. And Peter says, what kind of harm? Who is there to harm you if you prove zealous? Now, the, the, the translation there, prove zealous, actually translates, it, it somewhat paraphrases what Peter says in the original when he says, 
when he says this, literally, he says, who is there to harm you if you become zealots? If you become zealots. We know that term zealot. To be a zealot is to be someone who is an adherent to something, a loyalist. And what is it that this person is loyal to? And, and Peter defines it as what is good. Who is there to, to bring you personal, concrete, practical, physical injustice if you, have, you, you become a zealot for the good? For what is good? Now, what does Peter mean there by the good? And again, he's operating on the basis of, uh, of an assumption of, of life in God's world where there are consequences to, to, to causes. Well, he summarizes this just a few verses prior to our section in chapter 3, verses 8 and 9. Notice what he, what he says about the good. He says this, 1 Peter 3, 8. To sum up, all of you be harmonious, sympathetic, brotherly, kind-hearted, and humble in spirit, not returning evil for evil or insult for insult, but giving blessing instead. That's the good. And so Peter is saying to the recipients of this letter, listen, if you have become a zealot for this kind of lifestyle, of harmoniousness, of brotherly kind-heartedness, of humility in the neighborhoods and communities in which you live, who is going to harm you for that? Who is going to do an injustice against you for that? And the way that he expresses this is to suggest, even in this world, it is more often not the case that such virtuous lifestyle is persecuted. And that leads to the next assumption here. And that's found in the second sentence, and it's this. Suffering for doing good is a distinct privilege. So so first of all, the first assumption upon which we're to operate is that diligence in doing good is the first line of defense. That that that's how we, we we can prepay our defense is already in the moment establishing a lifestyle of of good relations, honorable relations, relations of integrity within our neighborhoods and communities. But then secondly, the second assumption upon which you're to operate is this. Suffering for doing good is a distinct privilege. He then says this, but even if, but even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed. What he's saying there is that, first of all, in verse 13, there's this general truth that in a world such as ours, generally speaking, a life of good will not elicit direct persecution. However, Peter goes on to say, however, there are exceptions. And in fact, it seems like some of these recipients were already facing the exceptions, and so he instructs them on this, and he gives them this assumption upon which they operate. Suffering for doing good is a distinct privilege. He uses the word blessed there. He says, you are blessed. Now, what does the word blessed mean? 
The, the word speaks of being especially favored, being privileged. And so what Peter is saying here is, is that, listen, as a general rule, if you're harmonious and you have humility in life and, and you are already living a life of doing good to your neighbor, of being generous and charitable, helpful in your community, that that will be a prepaid line of defense which will help you out in the moment of hostility. However, Peter goes on to say, he says, let's say that that doesn't always hold. Even if, he goes on, if suffering comes to you specifically for doing that good and being that messenger of the excellencies of Christ, listen, here's the presupposition. Suffering, in that case, is a distinct privilege. Recognize that, he says. This word blessedness doesn't refer to some kind of superficial levity that that we get when, when we hear a good joke or some good humor and wit. No, blessedness here has the idea of privilege. You are you are shown special favor. In fact, we already read the verses in chapter 4 that suggest that. In chapter 4, verse 12, specifically verse 13. Why is this a privilege? Because he says in chapter 4, verse 13, that you share the sufferings of Christ, and that allows you to rejoice. And, and rejoice with exaltation. This is This is joy to the second power. That when you suffer, it's privilege. When you suffer for the good. So this is where we must begin. We must establish these fundamental assumptions. And this is so very important for us as we think about the future. About what's coming. That we must already be laying the foundation now. That our lives must be that first line of defense. That we must establish these testimonies of integrity, of dignity, of honor, of integrity and, and truthfulness, of, charitable, of charitability, of generosity. And that's not just some kind of hypothetical, yeah, in some situations, but in a very practical way, it's how we must live our lives at the workplace and in our neighborhoods, that our neighbors know us for Helping out when, when they need help, mowing their lawn or fixing something that is broken or, or helping them store something or what have you. But showing them this grace and charity is what gives us a very successful defense in the future. And more than that, Peter says, already begin to understand, already be thinking and contemplating on the fact that even if the persecution comes to you and you suffer injustice because of your testimony to Christ that you are to look on it as privilege. It is not something to fear. It is not something from which to run and flee. It is not something from which to hide, but rather it is a distinct honor that we are to embrace. Secondly, the second directive that we find in this text is is now found in the middle of verse 14 and into verse 15, and it is this. Obey the primary obligations. Obey the primary obligations. 
Peter says this, and do not fear their intimidation and do not be troubled, but sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts. Peter identifies here two obligations in response to the possibility of maltreatment for doing good. Two obligations, and he does so in a a classic antithetical construction. He says essentially, don't do this, do that. Don't do this, do that. And and, and these are the the primary obligations that we have. Now, here again, he builds his quote off of an Old Testament passage. He he builds this instruction, these obligations, off of something stated in Isaiah chapter 8, verse 12 and verse 13. Let me begin reading in verse 11. Here, Isaiah records these words. And, And by the way, this is in response to... The, the, the threats of the armies of Assyria as, as they were threatening to take down the land of Judah and, and the, 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 the nation of Judah and, and, and to destroy it. And so God reveals this message to Isaiah and gives him comfort in the midst of this to alleviate his concern as well as the concern of the people. And this is what Isaiah records in chapter 8 verses 11 to 13. He says... For thus the Lord spoke to me with mighty power and instructed me not to walk in the way of this people. They were fearful. Don't walk in that way, Isaiah said. And he goes on quoting now the Lord. And the Lord said to to Isaiah, you are not to say it is a conspiracy in regard to all that this people call a conspiracy. And you are not to fear what they fear or be in dread of it. It is the Lord of hosts, whom you should regard as holy. And he shall be your fear, and he shall be your dread. Very powerful quote, very, and a very important word for that particular situation. Well, Peter takes those words, and he weaves them into his own instruction to the residents of Cappadocia and Bithynia and Pontus and Galatia. And he gives us from that two obligations which apply even to us today. First of all, number one, obligation number one that we are to obey is this. Refuse to fear your oppressors. Refuse to fear those who treat you uh, with, with evil, who malign you. Refuse to fear them. He says in verse 14, quoting Isaiah, and do not fear their intimidation and do not be troubled. He takes these two prohibitions, this couple and, and, he, and, and he gives it to the current context. Now, the word here to fear, which is prohibited, means to be in an apprehensive state. You know, when we are fearful, it means that we believe that something we cherish is under threat. That, that's what it means to fear. You can think in your own previous uh, life, the things that you feared at one time? Why did you fear those things? Because they threatened something that you cherished. Perhaps it was a job or financial security or, or some other relationship. You feared because something threatened what you cherished. And here, quoting Isaiah, Peter says, do not fear. Now, what are they not to fear? Well, the way he's worded it, he adapts some of the wording of Isaiah 
And it's translated this way. Do not fear their intimidation. But literally, very, very interesting. It it reads this. Do not fear their fear. Do not fear their fear. What, What is he talking about there? Well, essentially, Peter is piling up these terms to make an emphasis. And what he means by not fearing their fear, it's essentially do not fear them. Do not fear the fear that they inspire. You could put it this way. Do not be intimidated by the kind of fear that they seek to sow. Do not be manipulated. And this is one thing that is true about our enemy. Understand this. The enemy of your soul knows that fear is a powerful motivator. And if he can cause you to fear, he can manipulate you to to get you to do all kinds of things. Fear, in this sense, is a danger, a huge danger. And Peter is saying, listen, in response to your oppressors, to those who malign you, do not fall into their trap. Do not fall into fear. He goes on to say this in the second half, parallel. He says, and do not be troubled. Do not have inward turmoil. Do not be thrown into confusion by your oppressors. And this is so important for us today because even when we look ahead and we see what's coming and we see how Christians have been increasingly persecuted in in other settings as well, we begin to fear. What are they going to do to my job? Am I going to lose my job because of the stand that I take? Or what's going to happen to me if I can't anymore get service from the bank because I don't hold to the right views? And, and what are they going to do to me in my neighborhood if they know that, that I'm going to a Christian church that, that believes in the gospel and believes in church discipline and so on and so forth? And there's fear from that. And, and, and what Peter says is get rid of it. Get rid of it. Don't fall into their trap and their manipulation. That's obligation number one. Refuse to fear your oppressor. But then there's the second half of this obligation. Second half, he he, he writes this in the first half of verse 15. And it, it sums up this way. Submit to the lordship of Christ. That's the second obligation here. Submit to the lordship of Christ. Verse 15 but sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts. Now Peter moves from his quotation of Isaiah 8 verse 12 to his quotation of Isaiah 8 verse 13. Here Isaiah 8 13 says, it is the Lord of hosts whom you should regard as holy. That's what Isaiah records. Yahweh Tzavaot is the title that's used there. The Lord of hosts, Yahweh Sabaot, Yahweh of hosts, of the armies. It is, the, it is Yahweh of the armies, of the hosts, whom you should regard as holy. That's what Isaiah says. But Peter uses this here in a, in a, in a very interesting way. Now, first of all, let's look at the word sanctify. Peter says, but sanctify. Sanctify, it has the same idea as the word regard as holy in Isaiah. What does it mean to sanctify? It means to reverence, to regard as holy, to set apart, to recognize as the ultimate. That's what it means to sanctify. It's not the mundane. 
It's not the usual. It is special. That's what it means, to sanctify. And, and, he's, and, and the object of, this, of the sanctifying is identified by Peter as Christ, as Lord. Now, this phrase is, is for translators, notoriously difficult to translate, because it could be translated in three ways. Peter could be saying, sanctify Christ as Lord. Set apart Jesus as your master. That's how the NASB and the LSB translate it. And there's a lot of good reasons for that. If you have an ESV, the ESV translates it this way. Sanctify Christ the Lord. Sanctify Christ the Lord. But then there's a third option, and I believe that's the option here. You would translate it this way. Sanctify the Lord. Revere the Lord. Revere the Lord. Reverence, regard as holy, set apart the Lord. In response to the, the intimidators and the oppressors, revere the Lord. That's the exact opposite. Moreover, it follows exactly what was written there in Isaiah. So what you have here is an amazing statement. Get this. That when Isaiah writes, he's, Isaiah is, is told to revere Yahweh of hosts. Give him the prime place in life, in your heart. Give him the ultimate reverence. Yahweh Tzavaot. But here, Peter, in an amazing statement that testifies to the divinity of Jesus, Peter says, revere the Lord, that is, Jesus Christ. Without any intimidation whatsoever, without any shrinking back and hesitancy, Peter identifies the Christ, who is the person of Jesus, that historical figure, as deserving of the same reverence that Yahweh demanded from Isaiah. A clear, a clear connection to Peter's understanding of the deity of Jesus Christ. And, and Peter goes on to say this, set him apart, set, set the Lord, that is Christ, apart in your heart. Now here, Peter goes a little bit beyond just the mind. Now we've talked about it already a lot in this series, that it's so important that Christ is Lord of our thinking, of our thoughts. But by this phrase, in your hearts, Peter takes it one step further. And when he says, set apart the Lord, revere the Lord, who is Christ, in your hearts, he's referring to our mission control center, the, the, the foundation of our, uh, of our being. Set him apart at that very personal level. Set apart the Lord. That is, set apart Christ. In other words, fear him. Fear him. And that's so important in the midst of trials and opposition and hostilities. Listen, if you don't have a robust fear of Jesus Christ, we're not talking about a, a fear that causes you to flee from him. If you've got that kind of fear, and we've got to talk about the gospel with you, but we're talking about the kind of fear that drives you to him. 
The kind of fear that recognizes that he is ultimate. There's nothing greater and nothing beyond. That he and his opinion is what matters. Nothing else. That's what Peter is getting at here. And when we as men regard Jesus as this ultimate and as we regard him with reverence and awe and love, that is what will get us through any kind of persecution. You read the stories sometimes of those amazing martyrs in church history, men who had sacrificed their bodies at the stake and not budge a millimeter in their their profession of faith in Jesus Christ, and we wonder, how in the world could they do that? You read Fox's Book of Martyrs, and you see all the different means of torture that has been administered to Christians, and we thank God that that's, that isn't happening right now in our culture. It is happening in other places around the world, but not here, and we're thankful for that. And we say, how in the world could I ever go through that? How in the world could, could I ever continue to, to, to proclaim the excellencies of Jesus Christ and the, the word of the cross if they threatened to cut out my tongue, pull out my fingernails, cut off my limbs, and then burn me? How could I do that? There's one very simple answer to that. Revere the Lord who is Christ. That's where... It comes from William Gurnell, the, the, the um, Puritan, said this, We fear men so much because we fear God so little. One fear cures another. When, men's, when man's terror scares you, turn your thoughts to the wrath of God. Or Matthew chapter 10, we have the words of Jesus who said this, Do not fear them. For there is nothing concealed that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. Do not fear those who kill the body but are unable to kill the soul, but fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Number three, the third directive in this text is this, display the appropriate responses. Display the appropriate responses. And we find this in the second half of verse 15, uh, all the way to the end of verse 16, as, as Peter uh, writes this, he says, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence, and keeping a good conscience, so that in the thing in which you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ will be put to shame. So he talks about this readiness to give a a response. And notice his response that he requires here of Christians is not the response of silence. I'm just going to keep my mouth shut. It's not an option. It's not the response of retaliation, where in response to their, 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 their hostility toward us, we respond in like kind, that he has already, Peter has back in chapter 3, verse 8 and 9, clearly said you cannot return insult for insult. And he doesn't allow for retreat. We are not just to, to, to hike up into the mountains and create our own commune and say, well, you know, that's it with the world. Shake off the dust off our feet and, 
and go and create our own community somewhere far away from any influence and, and hostility from the world. That's not what Peter allows. It, it, we have to have a ready defense, he says. And the word for defense here is the word apologia. And it's the word from which we get apologetics and apology. We often use the term apology to say, as we do in Canada, I'm sorry. You know, that's our, you know, our, our national motto. We, we will go around telling people we're sorry for all kinds of things. You go into a grocery store, and if you get bumped into in a grocery store, you apologize to the person who bumped into you and say, I'm sorry, which is kind of a uniqueness of Canadian culture. But the defense that he's talking about here is not apologizing by saying, I'm sorry. This apology is a robust defense, a robust defense to those who ask to give an account And it's given to everyone, everyone, without discrimination, king or commoner, and this defense needs to be the same. Moreover, it's a defense that's not given about our own idiosyncrasies, our own traditions, and the things of that nature. You know, why, why do you do this? And it just happens to be just something of a personal preference issue. That's not what he's talking about. The defense is offered in light of the hope. The hope that is in you. And that word for hope, which is used throughout 1 Peter, is a reference to salvation. Salvation in Christ. That's what he's referring to there. This this forward-looking hope. This this belief and, and this peace and settledness within the promises of God. So what kind of response then must there be as this defense is given? Number one, response number one, answer in the appropriate attitude. As you give this apologia, you do so with the appropriate attitude. This is so very important. Notice what he says in verse 15. He says, always being ready to make a defense, yet with gentleness and reverence. Note those two words. It speaks of of an attitude. And the first word here is the word gentleness. The word gentleness, proutes, it's, it's the idea of, of not being overly impressed with one's own self-importance. That's a, a mouthful for this word. This word was a, a very important word even within Greek ethics at the time. They, they realized there's this power behind gentleness. And the gentle one is the one who does not insist on his own rights. So why does Peter prescribe it here? Because Peter's pointing to the fact that in the midst of the persecution, as you're treated with hostility, remember, it's, it's not about you. You're not defending your own personal fame. You're not defending your own personal honor. That's not what this defense is about. You couldn't care less about what people thought of how you looked and how you spoke and how you dressed. That, you know, that's not what we're talking about here. It's something greater than you. That's what you're defending. And so this particular attitude is one that deals horizontally. As you, as you respond with gentleness, it, it, it relates to, to your interpersonal relationships, how you, how you manner your speech, how you, how you speak, your, your intonation, your, your, your words, your choice of words, your 
your, your facial expressions, all of this is done with this, this underwriting attitude that it's not about me. I'm not defending myself. It's something much greater than me. And then the second attitude that's here is the attitude of reverence, literally with fear, literally with respect or awe. You must give an answer with reverence. Now, this is interesting because Peter has just told us not to fear man. Don't fear man. He said that in, in verse 14. Do not fear their intimidation. So this word is not speaking of reverence to the oppressor, but rather the attitude that he is describing here is a vertical attitude. That as we make our defense, as we answer to people for the hope that is within us, not just for our own idiosyncrasies and behaviors and so on, but but for the hope that is within us, the salvation that we profess, that we do it not just with a gentleness to others, but we do it with reverence to God. That as we give the defense, we are at the same time fearing God. We are fearing Him. He is the ultimate audience as we give our defense. And when we fear him, it means that as people ask us questions, why do you believe that? Why, are, why do you hold such antiquated views? Why do you believe that there's only one way to heaven? How would you be so ridiculous and offensive to suggest that that all goes through the cross of Jesus Christ? Why? And when you give that answer, when you do so with reverence, you're fearing God as you do this, it means you will not be tempted to compromise the message. You'll not be under pressure to, 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 to make the offensive stuff in the gospel less offensive. Because you'll know that you're answering before God. And this is a crucial attitude in the response. Now, speaking of that, John Newton, he wrote a little article on, on controversy if you want to Google that and read that article, it's great. He talks about the, the gentleness with which we are to interact with people who disagree with us. And he highlights the importance that our defense, the thing that we are defending, has to affect the manner in which we defend it. Sometimes men can have the idea that the end justifies any and every means. So I'm defending the gospel, and so I can be as rude and crude, and you name it, as long as I'm defending the gospel. Peter would say, no way. There is an unbreakable consistency between the end and the means. Between the message of the gospel, the word of the cross, and the way in which we deliver it. God looks on both. John Newton said, what will it profit a man if he silences his adversary and loses that humble spirit in which the Lord delights? Well, there's a second response that's part of this. It's found in verse 16. Peter says, essentially, illustrate your defense with the appropriate conduct. So you must answer in the appropriate manner, with the appropriate attitude, but you also must illustrate your answer with the appropriate conduct. He says in verse 16, and keep a good conscience so that in the thing in which you are slandered, those who revile your 
good behavior in Christ will be put to shame. Now, we've already studied the topic of the conscience. We won't get into that. But when he refers to the conscience here and and, and the fact that it's a good conscience, it means he's referring to the fact that this person doing this successful defense does not have some kind of inner conviction of guilt that what he is saying is different from how he's living. Rather, he is able to make that robust defense for the word of the cross. At the same time, his conscience is affirming, yes, indeed, this is true of my life. This is so important. And so Peter commends us, commands us to to have the right, appropriate conduct to go with the defense. And and he even says that by doing so, there will be a, a purpose that will be achieved And that purpose is that you will put to shame, you will humiliate, you will silence those who make the ridiculous claims against you. That may not happen immediately, but it is going to happen ultimately. That that they will be left without the defense. That when you preach the word of the cross and you live the word of the cross in your life, then when you defend it, your adversary will have no true accusation to raise against you that holds any water. And you can move on in full assurance. Number four, the final one, and this one wraps everything up in a summary statement, verse 17. It's the fourth directive, and it's this, embrace the sovereignty of God. He says in verse 17, for it is better if God should will it so that you suffer for doing what is right rather than for doing what is wrong. Literally, the the sentence reads, to suffer because of doing good, if God should will it, is better than to suffer because of doing evil. As Peter concludes this instruction, he, he draws back to what he stated earlier on, those fundamental assertions that are found in verses 13 and and 14. And he gives us this better than construction. And he does so to challenge us to contemplate. To contemplate, to think through logically what's at stake here. And he emphasizes this, that in the grand scheme of things, it is far worse to do unrighteousness than than to suffer unrighteously. Let me say that again. It is far worse. Think of this in in principle terms. It is far worse to do unrighteousness than to suffer unrighteously. That's a principle issue that that we must guide, that that must guide our lives. That it, it is far worse for me to do anything that is unrighteous. That's the real evil that I must flee from. To do anything unrighteous. That's the problem. That's worse. But what is better than that, far better, is to suffer unrighteously, unfairly, unjustly. That's the good. That's the better. But what he does is he ties this to a very important remark. It's almost... Parenthetical, it can get lost easily, but it's, 
he doesn't intend it to be lost. He intends it to, to, to be right there in the middle to capture our attention. He says this, if God should will it so. If God should will it so. So we come back to this doctrine of sovereignty, which we do so often, don't we? It all comes back to this belief that God is in control. And Peter challenges his readers to to recognize this, that suffering for the faith, that reaping the consequences of of your testimony about Christ, that that facing the hostility of this world and all of the, the consequences that come from that, that is never purposeless. It's never a mistake. If you get a demotion, because of professing Christ. If you don't get a promotion. Because you profess Christ. If you don't get that job. If you don't get into that school. If, if you can't do this or that. Or something is taken away from you. And you face that injustice. Peter says. If it's because of your righteous affirmation of the power of the cross, God has willed it. God has willed it. And it takes us back to what he said in chapter 4, verses 12 to 13, where he says, do not be surprised. Do not be surprised that this comes as though some strange thing were happening to you. If you suffer loss because of your profession of faith, don't be surprised as if, where did this come from? Peter says, no, recognize, this is God's will. God is sovereign even over Satan's hand in persecution. And and some would respond to this and say, how can that be? How can the experience of injustice be, be, be under God's control? It may it never be. Then what's the point of it? How can you endure that if it's not God's will? How do you face loss if it's not God's will? If you have to say, wow, God isn't in control of this. This isn't part of his plan. What do you do? How do you endure? You can't. But when you know that Almighty God, in his sovereignty, wisdom, and goodness, has orchestrated this for his own purposes and for the good of his church and the glory of his son, Jesus Christ, then you can say, I can endure it. It's not out of his control. He works all things to the good of those who are in Christ Jesus. Well, just some quick applications that draw from this. I want to organize our thoughts very, very briefly here and challenge you men to think through this on your own. As I said, the notes will be posted with some more study questions. But just some final things. What I want to do is just quickly wrap our minds around this, this defense and the possibility of a hostile uh, environment. I want to wrap our thoughts around what we are to do before the defense, what we are to do during the defense, and what we do after the defense. First of all, before the defense, think ahead. Think ahead. Develop a biblical perspective on suffering for righteousness' sake. 
That's what Peter does for us there in verses 13 and 14. He works on the assumptions. We have to get those assumptions, those, those operating presuppositions in place before, before persecution ever comes. So that when it does, we're ready, we're prepared. We've got to, we've got to get ready. And then secondly, in addition to working out this, this biblical understanding of, of persecution, we, we, we have to begin laying the, the defense already by our lifestyle, establishing our testimonies that are public, that are visible, that are not hidden and in private. We must be known for our humility. We must be known for our kind-heartedness already. Again, sometimes it's easy to think, well, in the moment when my boss comes at me because of, uh, of, of what I believe, then I will start my defense. You are already setting yourself up for loss. You, you do this already even before the boss comes. You do this by establishing a lifestyle consistent with the word of the cross so that people see the integrity, the self-sacrifice, the charity, the kindness. Act now. Focus on living out 1 Peter 3, 8 to 9 already. That is what you need to do as you prepare for the hostility. This is what you do before the defense is even articulated. Number two, during the defense. What do you do during the defense? If that's already happening and you're facing the hostility, you're facing the consequences of your profession of the word of the cross, of your living that out in in consistency with the gospel, what do you do during the defense? Number one, fear the right thing. Fear the right thing. A robust fear of God and Christ will deliver you from the, the moment of compromise. That if you are, are, are fearing in the midst of that, you're, you remind yourself that as you feel the consequences, I've got to reverence Christ. And remember, He is ultimate. And the opinions of others don't matter. That in that moment, that fear of the right thing will deliver you from the temptation to compromise the message or to shrink back. Number two, speak carefully. In the midst of that defense, you must speak carefully. The manner of your defense is important. And we always would recognize, yes, the content is most important, but your manner is too. Understand that. And so gentleness must be must be in your language. You must have a pain on your heart for this, the condition of the soul of the one who seeks to do you harm. That as that one ridicules you or threatens you, the response that comes is that of gentleness and, and a kind of longing that desires that that person be saved. It's like what we see even from Jesus on the cross who prayed, Father, forgive them. Or Stephen, as he was being stoned to death, prayed for the murderous men, including Saul. Father, forgive them. Thirdly, during the defense, make sure you're living consistently. A life lived in harmony with your defense will both vindicate you and condemn your opponent. And you will have the good conscience. No matter what is done against you, 
as your opponents are desperate and, and as they express their hatred to the gospel, you will have a good confession, a good conscience. Finally, after the defense, after you have made your statement, your apologia, your apology, what do you need to do? Well, first of all, trust God's sovereignty. Know this, that whatever the result, it's exactly God's plan. And if the result is suffering, know that it is so willed by God. Embrace it. Don't mourn. Don't regret. Embrace it and consider yourself privileged to suffer for the cause of Christ. And then, number two, live by principle. Make it your principle that even after all of your defense, that, that you are committed to, to suffer for righteousness, then th- th- that that is better for you than to do anything that would be unrighteousness and suffer for that. Trust God's sovereignty and live by principle. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we reflect upon this text, we recognize the the, the great insight that it gives to us as we consider the world around us and what is both promised in your word that times will go from bad to worse. And as we also see as we read the newspapers and see what's happening in our culture, we need this. We need this text. And I pray that as we have studied this in detail this evening, you would take these truths and press them down deep into our lives to reveal the areas of weakness, the areas of fear, where we fear the wrong thing rather than you. You'd reveal those to us. You'd expose them and enable us by the power of your Spirit to undergo the transformation needed so that we can make a successful defense. And Lord, we do pray that in the moment, if that should ever arise, that each one of us here would be so convinced and, and, so, and have such reverence toward you that we would be willing to put our lives on the line to say that we would be willing to die for the message that we proclaim, that Jesus Christ is Lord and Savior, that we'd embrace that and we'd see the the privilege of which we are unworthy to be counted as one who would die for Christ. While that seems unlikely in our lifetime, Lord, there are a lot of other little steps along the way. Open our eyes to see those moments when we can do this in a little way to give you glory by making the right defense. And we ask this so that Christ would be honored in our midst, in our, in our defense, in our words, and in our lives, and that those around us would see the wonderful power of the gospel at work in our courage. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.